NOLA History Guy podcast for Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. With uh, COVID-19, uh, everything's fine here. Uh, don't uh, I'm not sick. The wife isn't sick. The kiddo isn't sick. He's working from home. Uh, he's working remote, as they say. And Lieutenant Firstborn is uh, with his shipmates on the USS Topeka in Guam. So he's fairly much okay because the the boat is only going to go out and back, you know, leave leave the island, go underway and come back. And they're not engaging in any uh, hazardous slash dangerous port calls would be the way to say that. So we're back to doing our, our thing, as it were. And uh, it's uh, it's St. Patrick's Day. So we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, just a couple of things about the Irish. You know, we talk about the Irish a lot that has uh, really the main thing there has to do with the fact that I, uh, you know, my parent, my grandparents were uh, my my dad's family is all from Sligo in uh, the west of Ireland. And there's so much about the Irish that tie into the uh, the history of New Orleans in so many different ways. You know, starting going all the way back to Alejandro O'Reilly and uh, and his governorship under the in, you know Spanish colonial Louisiana, all the way up to and including the present day and the hot mess that were the the St. Patrick's gatherings and parades over the weekend in the midst of COVID nineteen. But we'll talk about that on the um, on Yat Pundit in, in Yat Pundit's pub because we'll keep the keep the the, the politics of that kind of stuff. Uh, Try to keep keep on the history here in uh, on Nola History Guy. So what we're going to do is we're we're going to talk a little bit about the Irish, but with uh, a particular focus today, and that being the uh, uh, what I call the secession year, the year of independence, which basically is uh, uh, from when the uh, the state of Louisiana seceded from the Union in 1861 all the way up till, uh, well, the, the events of the last few days of April of 1862, when the city uh, uh, surrendered to the uh, to, uh, Flag Officer Farragut, uh, Major General Butler, and the Union forces that had moved in on New Orleans at that time, and uh, pretty much took New Orleans and ended New Orleans' involvement in the Southern Rebellion. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but with an Irish flair today, <clears throat> that's the goal here. So, okay, uh, sit tight. We've got uh, basically two segments. We're going to first discuss a little bit of background on the Irish in New Orleans that lead up to 1861 uh, from, an, you know, from an army, from a uh, military service standpoint. Then we'll kind of, we'll take a break and then we'll, we'll, we'll fast forward to how or what that big contribution of the Irish was uh, on those, uh, the, those fateful days uh, during the invasion of New Orleans. 
So here we go. All right, so let's get to it. We're going to talk a little bit about the Irish and their connection involvement with the uh, with the United States Army in particular, because this plays in such an important factor in the events that lead up to the capture of New Orleans and the surrender of New Orleans by the rebels uh, and it becoming once again a, um, a, a Union city and a Union port and Union stronghold for most of the Southern Rebellion. So let's start with the Irish themselves. You know, they're, they're coming over and we've told that story a lot. I'm going to put up a, my favorite telling of the story these days, of course, is the, uh, the little video uh, I did for Crescent City Living. Shout out to Lisa. Shout out to Krista Rock, who did the, uh, who, who did the, uh, the videography and picked the music and just generally made that whole little piece look fantastic. And uh, it was it was it was a lot of fun to do, and it kind of gives the a very brief background. Uh, the idea is that Crescent City Living, of course, is is Lisa Heindel's uh, real estate brokerage, and um, and uh, a few years ago, gosh, we got to do some more of these, Lisa. Um, a few years ago, we we got together. She asked me, would I talk about different neighborhoods in New Orleans and then she'd get Krista to record me and then they turned that into some stuff to showcase different neighborhoods in the city to entice uh, folks to to buy homes in those neighborhoods because well they're they're real estate folks right they're realtors so yeah it was it was a lot of fun to do and then so when we came around to doing the Irish Channel when uh, that's you know it it's that's I I taught the you know the kids from Redeemer who were lived up in the the channel and went to had gone to redemptorist we'll tell that story i i need to tell we were talking about that the other day i need to tell that story in in a little more depth of how that came about um we'll get there uh so, but um but you know it's like krista lives up there i've got some personal connections to the neighborhood and it was just a, a lot of fun to do so we'll put that on i'll put that little video on the show page for the pod here that way you'll be able to see that and get some of the background but suffice to say that the Irish come to New Orleans and they're immigrants and the story of the Irish coming to New Orleans is in many ways not that different from them coming to Baltimore or coming to New York uh, and certainly coming uh, you know up into New England into the Boston area the, you know um, the the big thing is like any group of immigrants that comes to a city you're looking for employment you're looking for ways to settle down and and set up roots where you are so the irish come to new orleans there's uh at that point you know you've uh, got uh, a, uh you already have some irish folks here that have rolled in uh, through the Caribbean, through the you know the, the 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 British and Spanish navies over a few generations, and now in the eighteen from the eighteen twenties into the eighteen forties, you start seeing even more and more Irish immigration to New Orleans. Uh, by the eighteen forties, of course, now you're into the 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 famine in Ireland and the circumstances surrounding that, and in general, Irish immigration is increasing. When a particular immigrant group starts increasing in terms of the numbers of people coming to an area, coming to a country, what, what you end up seeing is a situation where the, the job, the, the number of people coming in outstrip the jobs available or the employment available. The Irish have, a, have had a solution for employment 
for just centuries, and that is essentially to be mercenaries. Now, there, when I say mercenaries, I'm basically referring in in this case to the British Army, uh, where you just have oh, just Irish that are willing to enlist, and as they as they used to say, take the king's shilling, which was essentially the 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 bonus or the bounty for uh, for signing up and enlisting in uh, the in in uh, His Majesty's service, and um, and and of course they did because in a lot of cases that was the only alternative. The you may get shot at, you may get killed, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but the 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 army was going to feed, clothe, and sh- well shelter to an extent uh, you as you went along. That same mindset applied to the Irish coming to the United States. And, and again, this is why I say the Irish tended, you know, in, in many ways you could consider them in a lot of ways mercenaries. They weren't uh, fighting as much for the crown or they weren't going to Catholic countries to fight against Napoleon. They were, uh, or in some cases, fighting for Napoleon as well because of the fighting against the, the, uh, the British. Um, the Irish weren't in it for, in, in a lot of cases, for the cause as much as they were for survival. The same mindset applies to the Irish coming to, to America in the 1840s, as you see a lot more of these men joining the United States Army. And by, and that, that's, it, it, it's one of those deals where when, uh, the Irishmen that were in garrisoned in different units in a peacetime army, ah, you know, you can you can deal with the transition of men who are not from this country kind of getting into step, as it were, in the army. Now let's go to 1847 and the United States of America declares war on the uh on 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 mexico and uh that there therein becomes our problem let's expand well let's let's talk first of uh, some background here of course the the united states is has you know declares war on mexico uh the army moves down into texas to prepare to invade to cross the rio grande and invade mexico and push back, get revenge for the Alamo, uh, and basically a lot of what are uh, you know, what what we uh, now look at as the manifest destiny type goals of the United States in the West. Uh, that's kind of fed by uh, by uh, Texans who, of course, want to solidify and uh, and push the Mexican, uh, push Mexicans, the Mexican government, Mexican army out of Texas so that then they can control their own destiny as well. At the time, that was the perfect opportunity for a lot of the Irish as well as Germans to establish themselves to basically well, establish but to to get employment in the United States. So we have a uh, uh, the what we see then is that you you have a lot of Irish and Germans enlisting in the army and then basically getting packed up and heading down to Texas. 
Now, the officers that were in command of these units that were going down to invade Mexico were mostly wasps. They were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They're, they're the extension of the, Rev of the Continental Army and then basically about 50 years of, uh, of uh, development of the United States Army. But it's basically white Protestant men who become the, the, the backbone of the army. That's what it is, after all, what the 13 colonies were for the most part, as well as the uh, expansion uh, of the, you know, the period from the, the Revolution to 1847. So, so we see this really, really white Anglo-Saxon army come down. But now you've got a, a bunch of Irishmen and Germans attached to that army. And they're not in separate units as such. You might have had a company of, of Irishmen or you know squadrons of, of, of Irishmen who are commanded by a WASPy officer. That Okay, that had yeah, that definitely that happened, but you don't see Irish officers as such at this point. So what happens, of course, is is that these waspy American officers don't have a lot of patience with foreigners. Imagine that, and the Irish and the the Irish and the Germans had more in common with each other than the wasps at that point because both groups, Irish and German spoke foreign languages as far as the American officers were concerned. Uh, the, uh, the Irish language is not English in that sense. You know, if you listen to an Irishman and, and even today, you know, listen to, to uh, you know, Irish news or something on, uh, on YouTube or if you know someone who is from, uh, who is, is from Ireland directly, not so much Irish American. And you'll see they still have, you know, the, 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 the romantic part of that would be the Irish lilt and all of that kind of thing. But one of the things, one of the, uh, the big things is, is that, um, you, you see this with just about any dialect of, uh, of English, whether it's, uh, Scottish, Australian English, Irish English and even uh, even northern Georgia in the in in the southern United States where there are just times when somebody starts talking and you get a southerner that starts drawling or a Scotsman with their brogue or the Irish and you, you're like what is he saying and what happens there is you get now you've got these frankly no other way to say it you've got these these very very prejudiced uh, American officers who don't have the patience for uh, even Irish uh, and, and German uh, non-commissioned officers who are trying to talk to them in some fairly broken English, and uh, and it becomes a problem. So what happens is is that you see a lot tougher discipline on these men. Now, yeah, you had the guys that were drinking and the guys that slept on guard duty and that kind of thing. But the punishments that were meted out to the Irish and the Germans tended to be uh, disproportionate because they were foreigners, you know, in some cases because they were Catholic, that kind of thing. That presented a problem to the point where you even saw the Irish basically mutiny uh, with the uh, that's that be, that's the St. Patrick's Battalion 
during the uh, the the Mexican War in 1847, and that's a whole nother story. But it's the idea that the the Irish again are not in it for the cause. There's you know when you're when you're committed to something because it's your it's your land, it's your people, it's your family. You tend to do things differently than if you're just in you're in it for the money and you're in it for survival. You can push somebody to the point where they will they will stop doing what you want in the under those circumstances. That happened with uh, with a uh, group of Irish soldiers who essentially mutinied, went over to Mexico, and then formed a unit, a battalion in the Mexican army. Uh, eventually, most of them were, were uh, most of them were either killed in, in, in engagements during the war, uh, or they were caught and then executed as deserters and traitors uh, as the war progressed. And uh, the, you know, the, the, the tide had completely turned for the United States. The Germans, you didn't see that level of mutiny, but they still received the same amount of uh, ill treatment on the hands of the army officers. So what happens there is the, the, the point to this, and just kind of keep this in the back of your mind when we shift focus back to New Orleans, is that you've got white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, uh, Americans, who see themselves as better, if you will, than the Irish and the Germans. And that's the piece of this that as we fast forward up basically 14, 15, uh, 14 years uh, from 1847 up until uh, to, uh, up to the Civil War, to the to the um, to the beginning of the Southern Rebellion, uh, you'll see that that becomes a thing. So the background here, the Irish are coming to America. They get jobs. More Irish come. There aren't as many jobs. The Americans want to go to war. They want to put the, the army on a wartime footing and expand it. That's appealing to these uh, men who don't have employment and need to feed their families, etc., etc. They go off to war. They don't like the treatment they get. Some of the mutiny. Uh, a lot of them stick it out. You know, there's, there's, there's you know, a difference that remember keep keep that in mind it's not like there was a whole uh, there i mean there was a huge that that to have a battalion to be able to form a battalion strength military unit from deserters is that's a fairly significant thing uh we'll put up the rogues march is probably the best book i've read on the St. Patrick's Battalion and it's it's a good read i'll we'll, we'll put that in the show notes to make sure everybody's got that as well so we see that situation where it's the the Irish their loyalty is to is to home and hearth friend and family and that's the that's the big point as we move now into the story of the the Irish in New Orleans uh, moving into 1860. So let's go ahead. Let's take a bit of a break. Uh, and then when we come back, we're going to jump ahead to the uh, secession of Louisiana and up and talk a little bit about the Irish involvement there. NOLA History Guy is sponsored today by Elysian Fields Press, publishers of Hidden Talents by Edward Branley. New Orleans is hot, humid, spiritual, and magical. Anita Delatore is a junior executive for a publishing company specializing in Christian books and homeschooling uh, materials. Anita's assignment is to be her company's liaison with a New Orleans-based radio preacher whose books the company publishes. 
A group seeking to discredit their client is all too successful, and Anita must take steps to stop them using any means at her disposal. And Anita's means are formidable. She is a sorceress whose psychic talents extend well beyond those of most mortals. Renard Alciator is a 34-year-old photographer who enjoys using his computer skills to mock Anita's client, the Reverend J. Hadley. As Ren begins to receive information of financial and sexual improprieties from inside J. Hadley Ministries, his life is threatened, and in the process, his own talents are revealed. He is placed under the protection of a shadowy organization known as the Assembly as he learns to use his talents to improve his photography, help others when he can, and defend his own life when challenged. What were once hidden talents emerge in the hot New Orleans summer. Only one will walk away when duel is joined. Elysianfieldspress.com. You can buy hidden talents autographed there, signed by the author. Uh, you can order it from all the usual suspects online, and it's available at a number of local bookstores. Uh, again, signed copies of, of Hidden Talents you can get from ElysianFieldsPress.com. That's ElysianFieldsPress, all one word, dot com. And we're back. Okay, let's, let's shift focus from a general discussion of the Irish in the United States and what happened during the Mexican War, because both of those are, are bigger picture topics than uh, what we're talking about with the, um, you know, what we're talking about with New Orleans. But let's move now into New Orleans. And uh, the, the Irish have been in New Orleans uh, almost since the beginning. Again, Spanish colonial, if nothing else, you've got wild geese that are coming uh, at various times. And, but the, the, the most... Uh, famous slash infamous would be Alexander O'Reilly, who uh, was the second Spanish governor of the uh, of of uh, Spanish Louisiana of colonial Louisiana, coming just in in general, and then you have a whole bunch of what I refer to uh, in general when I'm doing talks as the Anglo Irish uh, that are in the city, and that. Uh, basically what happens there is, you know, you've got folks who came in to New Orleans in the 1820s and the 1830s uh, as they come in. And just like any immigrants to an area, you, 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 get, you get employment. You may start at the bottom rung of uh, a business ladder, that kind of thing. But in 10, 15, 20 years, you're calling the shots. You may have your own business. You may be in some sketchy businesses as we go. Uh, is the line I, I, I used at, uh, at I, I kind of use it at, uh, at at different points. Is that at various times in the history of New Orleans, the Irish have been both the organized crime and the cops, and it's and that is the story of a lot of immigrant uh, populations as we go along. So the so anyway, so the idea is that basically we're, uh, you see the Irish coming in. Uh, there's all the stories in particular about the Irish and the construction of the new canal. Uh, the, the, some of those, some of the stories are a bit, uh, are, are a bit, uh, I guess exaggerated is the thing there, but there is no doubt that the, uh, well, there, there's no doubt that the Irish, uh, uh, are, 
very responsible for the construction of the new Basin Canal going up, connecting South Rampart Street with Lake Pontchartrain. And uh, the, you know, of course, again, this is some of the some of the, the tales are a bit in, inflated in terms of like, you know, how many people uh, uh, died as a result of uh, yellow fever and malaria trying to clear that area in what is now Lakeview uh, in Mid-City uh, and get the canal uh, out to West End. Uh, but it's it is it was basically an Irish project, and we go from there. But the big uh, and and and, well, and naturally, it's the same situ- situations as we described before. You can't get a job; you have to do something that other people don't want to do. In this case, you have uh, planter class white folks who are not willing to use their investment in enslaved Africans for digging this canal because, well, uh, the, the, uh, the, the enslaved Africans were expensive. Uh, and uh, the, the, you put that labor, uh, focus that labor on things that make profit like cotton and indigo and that kind of stuff. Digging a canal, not so much. Get the Irish to do it. It's the thing. Uh, in nationally, uh, a few years later, get the Irish to be part of the army, and the Germans to uh, uh, to uh, that extent as well, because they're having they're hitting the same situation where uh, you've got uh, Germans in particular, Catholic Germans, uh, not so much Prussians, but we start getting into Rhinelanders and uh, Bavarians who are trying to get away from the hot mess that is 1840s Central Europe. Uh, geez, you know, it's like just the, the turmoil of uh, post-revolution, uh, post-French Revolution, post-Napoleonic uh, Europe was always a mess. And the Germans were never, you know, the Germans were not, uh, Germany as a nation doesn't happen until the 1870s, right? So you have all of these small principalities, uh, lar- to an extent larger than going into the kingdoms of Prussia and v- Bavaria, but it's a it's a mess, right? So you have a uh, again another. That's a good reason for those folks to to uh, to leave their homes and, and immigrate to America. A lot of them end up in uh, the United States as well. Let's take the Irish Channel as an example here of uh, Germans and Irish in New Orleans. Now the Irish uh, set up their first church parish, their first Catholic church parish in 1833, and that's St. Patrick's uh, Church on Camp Street. But naturally, the 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 number of Irish grow so that they're basically moving from downtown and what is now the warehouse district uptown into the lower garden district and that's where we get the term the irish channel because it becomes this uh area that's uh basically uh uptown between magazine street and the river so you have a lot of you know you have a lot of port facilities a lot of uh industrial uh and and commercial facilities that support the riverfront and in and out of that you've got the irish uh coming in and building houses or or, you know uh buying lots and uh, and setting up and and getting their families established that's all very that's all that's all fine but at the at the very same time you have german immigrants doing the same thing so that we refer to the neighborhood as the irish channel but think about the nexus, the big points of the Irish Channel. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking to celebrate on St. Patrick's Day, which 
uh, well, just isn't really happening the same way this year because of COVID-19. Uh, but the you know traditional nexus at that point was always Constance and Third Streets, which was Parasol's bar. And then the story of that moving where the, uh, the building was sold and somebody else took over Parasol's, the original Parasol's people go down to the corner of Magazine and Third. That becomes Tracy's. And you still have that block party atmosphere or mentality there. Why Constance and Third? Well, because Constance Street, if you go a couple of blocks down, you get to Constance and Josephine. And Constance and Josephine is more the spiritual or heritage nexus, you know, not just the pub of the community. And that's going to be St. Alphonsus Church on, uh, on Constance just off Josephine. It's directly across the street from St. Mary's Assumption Church, which is the German church. And then, of course, there was the uh, Church of Notre Dame. So you had three churches in a single parish, all basically administered, run, and mass said by the Redemptorist Fathers. So you'll hear that term, the Redemptorist Parish. The point I'm getting to all of this, though, is that the Germans are in the thick of this as much as the Irish. And as goes the, as goes the port and the Irish jobs, so go the German jobs. When we talk about these two communities, and uh, there, there's that third community, if you will, which are going to be, well, white Catholic, white Catholics, Anglo-Irish Catholics, uh, Irish who have been here for a while and have a little more money. They live on, if you will, the other side of the tracks, you know, the better side. They live in the Garden District. They live in the city of Lafayette. They live in New Orleans proper on the, in the American sector. They're, they don't consider themselves, by and large, to be the same as the Irish immigrants of the 1840s and the 1850s. So we've got this community that's establishing itself. You've got uh, St. Patrick's uh, Parish. Now you're, uh, the, the Irish are moving up. The Germans are already in what is now the Irish Channel then. Uh, they both build out and establish solid roots with first the, uh, you know, first the, uh, the Germans build the, the, the little wooden church that is the original St. Mary's Assumption. Then they take that apart and preserve it and build the big church because the Irish have built the cathedral-sized church essentially across the street. Uh, yeah, there's, there's obviously there's different things going on there with the two communities, and they, 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 they live separately, they speak essentially different languages, they worship separately, but when compared to the quote-unquote Americans, they are a different breed. They're a different group of people. They don't, the Americans don't particularly mind this because, well, white people, uh, you didn't enslave white people. See, they were, the, the, the German and the Irish were not of use to the planter class to, in, in that respect, but there's a lot of jobs along the riverfront that needed to be done. The crops that came from the plantations needed to be prepared and then brought on, you know, uh, put on ships and then either brought up the river or taken on seagoing ships out back to Europe or and, and other points away from the United States. That all of those riverfront jobs, whether it was basic long, uh, basic longshoreman jobs, 
working in uh, places like cotton presses and other uh, commercial, uh, commercial light industrial uh, environments along the river. These were the kinds of things that the Irish and the Germans did. Now let's get to 1860 and Abraham Lincoln is elected president of the United States and in 18 in the in um in uh, January February of 1861 we see the white folks in New Orleans getting incredibly upset with this to the point where the state of Louisiana along with a number of other states in the south are ready to give up and just bail on the whole on the whole concept of the United States of America. Check. So the so the southern states secede from the union and uh and 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 leave. There's a lot more to it than that because uh we got going all the way you have to go back into the into the mid 1850s and the know nothing party and know nothing uh, philosophy, if you if you call it that, of government moving into the into 1860, and then uh, basically Lincoln's election being the final straw for uh, a lot of these folks. So the Louisiana joins the Southern Rebellion by seceding from the Union. Uh, they become uh, a member of the Confederate States of America, not immediately, but. Uh, but uh, you know, in, within months, they are part of the, uh, the Southern Rebellion completely. Uh, the, the Union decides not to take that lying down. Lincoln gets, uh, commits to preserving the Union. And one of the best things he can do, or one of the first moves he can do, is to take his quite strong Navy at this time and blockade Southern port cities. Naturally, the one of the places you're, you know, it's it, it's one of those things. It's like you should you would think that New Orleans would have been the the first and uh, the, the first and biggest target because it was the largest port, it was the largest port city in the southern states and the second largest port in the United States of America. But you see that uh, that, that that this has to grow out. You know where we uh, you see the blockades start on the Atlantic coast and uh, into Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia, coming around into the Gulf, and then the Gulf squadrons from there blockading the Gulf Coast, Florida, Mobile, and then finally New Orleans, just because it has to spread out to that extent to pull this off. So the blockade is quite effective. And the immediate impact of the blockade is on the Irish and the Germans. So now the, the situation here, and this is the point to the story, is that we're back to the same kind of situation where in the uh, back in, uh, as, as I said, in the in the army during the Mexican War, where the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and at this point we refer to that as the, the Anglo-Irish planter class, look at the German and Irish dock worker families and uh, Irish channel families that lived and worked along the New Orleans riverfront were definitely considered to be a class lower. And the planters and the influential white people of New Orleans really had no interest in including those folks into what they were doing and their 
and what 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 they were doing and what and their relationship with the government that basically they just didn't have any use for these immigrants. They again didn't speak the same language that Irish and German languages were different. Even when those folks spoke English, their heavily accented accented English annoyed the uh, annoyed the wasps and the established uh, the established Anglo-Irish. One of the best uh, uh, theses, if you will, or you know, or, uh, or uh, presentations of this this theory is a book called Mutiny at Fort Jackson by Michael D. Pearson. Now, Pearson gets into a lot of the detail of the uh, invasion of New Orleans in the book, but then the background that he he presents is quite interesting as well, where that one of the things that you'll hear from those who perpetuate the lost cause mythos is the the first response is, is this, if if the Civil War was about slavery, why did so many white people who didn't own slaves fight for the Confederacy? And while it's hard to speak, you know, you have uh, when well, the easiest way to say it is you fight in a war when you're looking to preserve your own interests. And now you have to ask, what are your interests? So if you're a white person who's business is involving supporting plantations and supporting the the economy that is based on enslaved Africans, naturally it's in your best interests to continue that economy and to further a government that continues that allows uh, that allows slavery uh, that's so that those people that make sense as far as they're concerned where do what are the interests though of the Germans and the Irish the Germans and the Irish have essentially been rejected by the uh, They've been rejected by the Anglo-Irish, by the planter class and the planter society. They're working on the river. They're doing what they do because we have a strong port and a strong port economy. So as soon as you take away that strong economy, what's left for those folks? The, the, The planter class are not terribly interested in charity and supporting them, the know-nothings don't have any respect for them. So all of a sudden, you've got a lot of hungry people. Lincoln commits to preserving the Union. That means everybody is seeing that the rebellion is going to turn into a shooting war at some point. The easiest thing for the Irish and the Germans as well to do is to well, to, to join the army again. It's what the Irish have done throughout history. You join the army, you get, you, you, you get paid, you get some, uh, you know, you're, you're able to put bread on the table and go from there. As the blockade continues, of course, the, uh, the ability of the rebel states to pay their army becomes uh, less and less uh, of, of a thing. And, um, and so what you end up with, of course, is now you've got you've got men that have committed to a military contract, uh, risk getting shot as a deserter, or uh, or at least you know uh, getting into to some serious punishment for leaving their posts in uh, in the rebel army, and that that. 
presents a whole bit of a problem. Now, this is where we get to the actual mutiny, and we'll do a podcast on the capture of New Orleans uh, and in, in April when we get you know toward the end of April and, and that whole bit. But the point that Pearson makes and is uh, discussed uh, in, uh, in, you know, by other sources is the idea that, uh, you know, basically that the idea that uh, if the war was about slavery, why did white people who didn't own slaves fight for the Confederacy? And the, what's glossed over there is the amount of unionist sentiment that existed in the German and Irish communities. That, yeah, the Irish, uh, it's, like, it's like, well, they were, yeah, they were white. Why would the, you know, if it was about slavery, why did they fight for slavery? Well, what if they didn't? What if they fought because they needed to survive? And there's a whole long tradition of that in, uh, in, in, with, with respect to the Irish all the way to the point of the blockade, you know, the, the, the naval blockade of New Orleans. So now the Irish, they're not looking, they're not looking to die for this cause. The treatment of the, uh, the, the treatment of the Irish in the, in particular in the Union Army, in, in the U.S. Army, was, had definitely improved in, the, in that uh, 14, 15 years from the Mexican War. One of the biggest uh, reasons that improved, or one of the biggest, uh, the most significant differences between the Army at that time and at the beginning of the Rebellion, was the fact that you, start, you had so many more Irish and so many more Germans in the uh, in the army, that you actually had separate uh, separate companies and separate uh, even battalions of Irish and Germans that were raised in those Irish and German communities in the north. So now all of a sudden, it's like everybody's Irish, including the officers are 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 now you know second generation Irish. Uh, in command of some of these units, the treatment of the average soldier was much better than in the in the late 1840s. Not so much in the South, because the planter class and the know-nothings still maintained a lot of the attitudes that you saw, those waspy attitudes that you saw uh, in the U.S. Army in Mexico in 1847. Um, Pearson's basic theory here or his his uh his his uh you know his thesis in mutiny at fort jackson is that the mutiny at the fort on the night of 28 april of 1862 was not simply a reaction to having the heck bombed out of you by the union navy and then uh response to bad conditions and terrible living conditions inside the fort as the blockade cut back supplies and, uh, and communication with the city uh, as, uh, as things moved forward, that it wasn't just a, re a, a spontaneous kind of, we're going, you know, we're done, we're out of here, but more of something that was simmering for a longer period of time and may actually have been planned to an extent that when the union troops got here when the union navy got here we're going to cross over there's a good bit of there, there's a lot of you got to take a look at pearson's book to kind of get into this theory when you look at uh the the idea of in particular like with the saint patrick's battalion where uh it's not an immediate 
just one thing where one officer just says, I'm, you know, you, you, you react to the treatment uh, by one officer, one commander, and then uh, it's a, spon- you know, a, a mutiny is a spontaneous thing at that point, but more of a systemic thing where you've got people from different units just saying, I'm done. And that's the thing here. Bring that all the way up to the uh, to the, the the days of the uh, the invasion by Farragut. You see the Union Navy moving up, and the big thing there is that there are three battalions in Fort Jackson as Farragut and Porter come up the river. One is a German battalion, one is an Irish battalion, and the third is a, bata- a battalion of the white planter class. You know, not the, the rich guy who owns the plantation, but again, the white folks that supported the, the, uh, the economy based on enslaved Africans, and they were willing to go uh, and defend that. Uh, two out of three don't really care about your army, your cause, and your economy. They want jobs. They want the port open. You can kind of see that's the that's the theory there. So we'll so we'll keep it at that for now. But that's the big thing is that um, the Irish and the Germans aren't merely just a social background or a spiritual nexus in terms of the big churches. They are the reason uh, and a, and a big contribution to the city not being having the daylights blown out of it because if Farragut can't get past Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip then it's going to be a tougher slog up the river Butler had like 18,000 troops that we you know basically Butler had this this fairly decent size invasion force that was coming from uh, Ship Island that was and we could very well have suffered the fate of Atlanta. Uh, maybe not burned to the ground in the same way Sherman did it, but we were going to get we were going to get bombarded from the river, invaded uh, by a very large army, looted, sacked, burned, you name it. And by having by by having the city put in a situation where they were facing that, cooler heads prevailed. And you can thank the the mutiny of the Irish and, and the Germans in in large part for that by making it easy for Farragut to get past the forts and then the invasion fleet getting through as well. So so stuff to keep in mind here and things to think about, just a little more serious, but then, you know, uh, we got to deal with the serious stuff as we go along in a lot of different situations. Okay, so that's been our first social distancing pod. We're going to I'm going to record um things hopefully a little more frequently right now simply because uh well, you know, when you're when you're stuck and you're really not doing a lot uh outside of the house, it's write and speak and write and speak for me. So uh, we'll be doing uh, some more of this as we go along. We will come back to the mutiny at Fort Jackson and talk a little more about the military situation involving the capture of New Orleans uh, when we get there, like, you know, in, in you know, April 25th you know, through, through May, we'll do that. In the meantime, we've got a whole bunch of other things to talk about, Some uh, nothing really to do with COVID-19, fortunately, but we'll take a step back and hopefully we can you know kind of create a situation where we can all kind of cope better with uh, social distancing quarantining and kind of staying away from each other and communicating in other ways so everybody hang in there uh hope you're you know you you're, you've got you know you've got got the supplies you need to to you're not gonna hopefully uh 
your kids aren't going to drive you crazy and uh, you're not going to worry about their brains melting with too much screen time, let them listen to some podcasts too. It's always a good idea. You guys take care and we'll catch you next time.